This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, Boeing says we'll need millions of pilots, technicians, and flight attendants over the next two decades. And aviation journalist Martha Lunken revisits the famous bridge. Do you use for flight more than you do flight service? You're not alone. And we're going to talk about sustainable fuel credits coming to hopefully an airport near you soon. And the black fly flew, actually, David, at Oshkosh. It did. And Ian, speaking of, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterpack final 1324. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, a guy actually you met with, you were shooting this story, John Martin. He is a sim instructor at SimCom down in Orlando, working with Alicia Heron on a sim turbine transition course, something somebody might take uh, if they're flying like a PC-12 or a King Air for the first time, something like that. Cessna Caravan? Yep, Caravan, that's right. This is really interesting. I think ties in great with our first story, which is that, first of all, there's all kinds of careers out there for all kinds of folks. But also, you know, if you're going on to that next step, if you're going on to that turbine world, then uh, this might be something that you take that first time. And, and so she kind of talks about what it's like and interviews John about what that process is like. Yeah. And he tells us a little bit about what it's like to be a, a transition in, you know, simulator instructor. Mm-hmm. And SimCom is going gangbusters. We'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the future. They're getting ready to expand their headquarters down in the Orlando area. John Martin has some real chops. He was a commercial pilot. He flew banners over the coast of North Carolina. And it's really interesting to think about having a career as a simulator instructor. That is not something I would have thought about. And I think that's really cool for folks trying to get into aviation. There are multiple opportunities and ways for you to get involved. And that does bring up a good segue to the Boeing forecast, the the pilot and technician's job forecast, which is released usually around this time of the year at AirVenture. Yeah, so this is something I know you've reported on for many years and that, you, like you said, they, re- they release it every year. More than 2 million, I think 2.1 million pilots, technicians, so mechanics, and flight attendants, they're looking at cabin crew. Of course, what we're mostly interested in is the pilots, and they're talking about over 600,000 pilots needed over the next 20 years around the world. That's true, Ian. And if you divide that out per year, you know the, the numbers are staggering. Now, let's be honest. Those numbers have been revised downward a little bit since 2021. The 2021 numbers called for 612,000 pilots needed in the next 20 years. Now we're looking at 602,000. 
5,000 new pilots and 610,000 new technicians versus about 620,000 maintenance personnel last year. Now, those numbers also were less than in 2020 and less than 2019, which is pre-COVID, before a lot of folks kind of got out of the aviation industry and before a lot of commercial travel changed drastically. They're still staggering numbers. Yeah, they really are. There's a huge input of personnel that's definitely needed. Yeah. And so it's interesting, you know, FAA puts out a forecast about sort of aviation activity throughout the United States, and it includes GA and air taxi and, and commercial. Boeing obviously has their forecast that's pretty much just about these these cabin crew and, and technicians and pilots. And one thing that I think that's interesting and lends a lot of credence to the Boeing is obviously they're they're doing their own delivery projections. Right. And so this obviously tracks with delivery projections, like we've talked about in the past. I mean, Boeing, you know, some airline comes to Boeing and says, okay, well, we've got, you know, we want this many orders. And Boeing says, well, this is going to translate to this many jobs. Boeing, I know, is, works with a lot of these airlines to, to fill those jobs. So it, it is, I think, a pretty reliable forecast as forecasts go. That's true. And that is, they do a little bit of voodoo science to kind of come up with those figures. But it is predicated on how many of the big, you know, airplanes are going to get manufactured out in, in Seattle and elsewhere that Boeing has manufacturing facilities. You know, one interesting thing to me was that in the story that we reported, um, Alyssa Cobb, who subbed for you a couple weeks ago, reported on this, and uh, it looks like 25% of airline pilots will reach the mandatory retirement age of 65 within the next 10 years. So that's I mean, we think of 10 years as pretty far down the road. It really is not. Yeah. No. No, I mean, if you're just starting out in college, for example, I mean, 10 years is, I mean, you're going to spend, what, four in school, another two instructing. I mean, you're getting there, right? So, yeah. By the time you get out, if you were right now starting as a freshman, say at North Dakota or Embry-Riddle, good friends of ours, or Middle Tennessee State, somewhere like that. Yeah, you're hitting the sweet spot. You are. You're going to be out and you're going to have this, and the demand is so high right now. You know, if you look around to the commercial traveling public, th- there's a real hole in in the you know in the staff right now. There's a huge staff shortage, but it also translates to us because there are there are corporate jobs, there's agriculture jobs. Exactly. You're right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So even if you're not interested in the airlines, uh, which of which this study this forecast talks about, even if you're not interested in that, they're you know they they are the big boys. They create you know, the giant sucking sound from everybody else. So if you want to be, if you want to be home every night and you want to be a sim instructor, there's going to be more of those opportunities. If you want to just teach people to fly and be a professional CFI, there's those opportunities. And if you want to fly corporate, there's going to be, I can tell you now, if you are typed in a jet and you want to fly contract, you can name your price and your schedule. It's amazing. That would be so cool, Ian. I, I was just going to get ready to ask you, you know, wh- why don't you and I do that a little bit and pick up some <laughs> yeah, some contract right. freelance money doing yeah. some of that? Wouldn't that be so cool? That would be nice. That would be fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I would like that. There are a lot of opportunities in aviation. That's the bottom line. Yep. There are maintenance jobs as well. There are jobs in management. There are jobs, we talked about this before, meteorology, IT, you know, and, and the list goes on. Yeah, everywhere. So one fewer commercial pilot in the mix, uh, Martha Lunken, starting from, what, a couple of years ago now, where she had her certificate revoked. You remember she flew under the bridge. Well, she's back. She she was able to earn her private pilot certificate at the end of last year. She just wrote about it for the latest issue of Flying Magazine, where she's a column, she was a columnist. 
interesting story, David. She she talks about her check ride. It's it's unique to get a perspective from somebody who's been through the check rides before, given check rides, worked as an inspector, and then had to go back through the check ride process again. So she's a pilot. What do you think of the story? I, I, it was it was interesting. You know, I, I thought that it was great to see Martha's hand back in the game, writing a, a, about her incident and you know the the revocation of her certificates. She got back into it. Uh, we talked about this earlier. She got back into it with a, a Cessna 150 check ride right around Christmas time. But I was amazed that her examiner was was testing her so thoroughly on VFR checkpoints and and things like that. And and her first first big checkpoint was the as she says the big beautiful Jeremiah Morrow Bridge across the nearby Little Miami River in Ohio. She had tuned her VOR for cross-bearing checkpoints and things like that, but this bridge is what got her in trouble. And yet here it is, her first, you know, flight back. She's getting a check ride. She's she's headed to that same bridge. I hope she didn't fly under it this time, Ian. I don't think she did. Yeah, it's it seems like she probably didn't. Yeah, it it um that was a nice little tidbit of the story. I think it is it is interesting. She talks about the thought process she went through and why she chose this examiner. She was really concerned, I guess, about having an inspector aboard because she knows that those can be difficult check rides. I think that concern was overblown. It's not very common. Maybe she thought she would be singled out. I don't know. So she she went in the 150 because of that, because it, it, she couldn't have the inspector. And I just, I was a little disappointed, honestly, reading that because I just don't think that we should be trying to game the system. And I think it sends the wrong message to students. We, you know, we say as instructors, it's like, if you're prepared, you're prepared. It doesn't matter who the, who the examiner is, yeah. who's along with it, you should be ready to do that flight. To your point, she the, the guy really did put her through the paces. I mean, she had to do it. Was, it's unusual. So usually, you know, for students who are listening, you'll go to the first checkpoint. You'll say, OK, here it is. I know I'm on my time. If you're not on your time, how much longer or shorter is your flight going to be? OK, these are common questions. And then they'll steer you off. OK, here's your diversion. And then usually you'll go do the maneuvers. And so that's what she did. But then after the maneuvers, the guy says, OK, go back on your cross country. And that that is unusual. And that would be unusual for anybody. But, but you know, the thing is, the FAA has to ha- put the best foot forward in this situation. You know, they that was a pretty major step to revoke her certificates after all those years and all that time. So, you know, I think they just wanted to cover their bases and make make sure there was there were no stones unturned. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, she ends the story. You know, she says she was a little confused or, or surprised by the attention to it. But it's obviously not too many people know somebody who's flown over a bridge. That's part of it. She's a prominent columnist. That's another yeah, part of it. True. But I was so again, I was just so disappointed because at the end of the story. So it's like, OK, this is really nice. You're a pilot again. At the end of the story, she's like she didn't feel like the revocation was deserved. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like, um, well, it's like a, I mean, not that she's a criminal, right. But it's like, it's like when you go to the judge, it's like the judge wants to hear you take responsibility for your actions. Sure. So sure. You can move on. And so you just, you read the story and you're like, I, I'm not convinced she's not going to do it again. You know, just fess up and, oh, and like God. you said, Ian, just fess up and move on Yeah, and seriously. don't fly under bridges because you know, you need, you need at least 500 feet of clearance, you know, between any person, place, or thing. Yeah, so, that's yep, right. It's pretty, pretty easy to understand that. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, David, let's talk about the weather a little bit. Let's talk about the weather. She probably had good weather for that flight. Yeah, yeah. Although it's cold in December in Ohio, but but how do people get? How do pilots get their weather? This is really an interesting topic. It is, and and so we know, you know, you talk to other pilots, and it's like, hey, how do, what do you check in, and what do you check in? So AOPA for the past six years has been putting out a formal survey. 
And that helps shape the advocacy. So when the FAA comes and says, or, or you know, National Weather Center, it's like, hey, we're thinking about this product or thinking about that product, or we want to do this to flight service or do that to flight service. This informs the advocacy. So we know, we can go in and say, we know that pilots tend to do this, this, and this. They do in this region, they might use this. In this region, they might use this. It's usually different in Alaska, not surprisingly. But just as a, another pilot, I'm really curious to see what other pilots are doing. And I, there were a lot of interesting takeaways from this. There were. You know, things have changed a little bit in the past five or, or six years or so. But uh, most folks do turn to an aviation application right off the bat. Now, I, like, like you and like other people, I mean, I will look at the Weather Channel for the big picture first. And still about 30, 25 to 30 percent of people do that. Right? This current survey says that 26 percent of pilots look at the Weather Channel first. 64 percent go to an aviation application, which I found was interesting. You know, uh, Ian, I'm wondering about some of the news services. You and I were, were prepping for this and uh, for the podcast. You were telling me about windy.com. What is that? Yeah, it's an app or I guess a website, yeah, that a lot of people use. It's really nice. I've started using it because it gives you two things, really. It'll give you information between weather stations. So if you're flying, especially like somewhere like out west or in Alaska where, you know, weather stations are, are far and few between, they model, I, I don't know how, honestly, I haven't dug that deep into it, but they somehow model what the wind is going to be like in those areas. And it's really nice and visual. I think that's the reason a lot of people use it is it's it's pretty to look at. But then it's also really nice because you can see big weather systems. You can see fronts and how the weather, the wind is moving around around pressure systems. And so it's just a really nice big picture sort of really quick. Okay, I can boom, I can see kind of what things are doing big picture wise. And sort of predict where things are, where, where systems are going to go. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that I actually use. I was going to mention this. I, I know you're a Garmin pilot user. I use ForeFlight a lot. If you are using ForeFlight, and I'm sure Garmin probably has something similar, but if you look at the TAFs for a local airport, there is a, a forecast discussion that's actually in real language. That's awesome. yeah. And to me, that's interesting. It's almost like I have picked up the phone and called flight service, and we're talking about the bigger picture. Well, there's high probability of you know precipitation in this area. Or, you know, thunderstorms are moving through at this time, that kind of thing. So it kind of gives me more of that bigger trend, uh, which is similar to what you're saying that Wendy kind of does. Yeah. So just for sake, you know, just real quick to, for people who aren't watching the video to, to see this graphic, I think it's pretty good. It, you know, it, we give over the past six years, but I want to just talk about the last two years. Aviation applications are actually down slightly, 71% to 64% this past year. Aviation Weather Center Online is down by about 6% to 41%. Flight service, actually more people used in 2022, up 3% to 30, which is interesting. Weather channels up a percent, 25%. This is it, by the way, I want to say this is initial. So, you know, you're going to fly in a couple days or, or oh, even right. that morning. This is your first look. Yeah, first look. Weather channel, 26%. That makes sense. Yep. Flight service web portal, it's gaining some ground. It's up to 24% from 19. Like you said, Windy is up to 20%. 20% of pilots are looking at that, um, up from 18 last year. Other, down to 19 Weather underground is kind of flat, about 17% of pilots are using that. AOPA weather, about 10% of pilots. And the weather cams, which are big in Alaska, we know. About Huge 4%. in Alaska. Yeah. Absolutely. 4%. But there's some needs improvement there, Ian. I want to bring yeah. this thing up, which then the needs improvement category are, are pilot reports. 
actual yes. reports when you're flying. Great point. And and I try to do that. I have done that before. There's an app that I use on occasion. Now it's dependent here uh, if you have cell phone coverage, but you can. It's a it's real simple and uh, it's called Virga, and you could um, put in you know what altitude you're at what kind of airplane you're at and sort of what you're seeing i think that's cool now i have also during when i like if i'm flying vfr and i'm doing flight following if i don't have two radios and the airplane i'm in i, I do occasionally ask can i go off channel and i'll call fss i'll do a, a pilot report i think it's helpful even if it's clear weather yeah and one of the findings was that people who learn to give pilot reports in primary training as you did i remember they're the ones who file pilot reports. So if if you didn't do it kind of from the beginning, it seems like you you don't do it, right, uh, which right. I suppose makes some sense. But the other thing the report does is is look at what your initial weather source is to what your immediately before flying weather source is. And they do change a little bit. Some of the websites go down and things like FISB and SiriusXM go up and that makes sense. One thing I think is surprising about that is that weather cam usage goes down immediately prior to flight, which to me, they're only really useful immediately prior to flight. So I don't know what that is. And the yeah, other thing that is, is the w- that is interesting. That's the, you would think it would be the other way around. Totally. Yeah. The other thing is that flight service, of course, goes up, but not by a huge margin. About 38% of pilots are using flight service immediately prior to flight. Apps go down a little bit. And like I said, the well, the web portal, the flight service web portal actually went up. Uh, okay. It goes in the past year, so they're gaining some ground. So I, you know, it's an interesting thing to check out. And it, and you know, to your point about Windy, you maybe get some new ideas, some new things to try, and new things to look at. Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that Windy. I haven't done it yet. That's something I'm going to think about. So I appreciate yeah. you bringing that up. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we move on, should we take a short break? Let's do it. Okay, welcome back, Dave. We're going to talk about fuel. It's not going to be Hunter Lilla, not going to be Avgas replacement. It's SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel. This is a subject that I geek out on. I know yep. a lot of people are not particularly yep. interested, so I'll try not to be too boring about this. But there is a new tax credit that just passed the Senate with the um, with one of the big new Senate bills. And this is, I think, really exciting for the turbine world. $1.25 to $1.75 in credits, depending on how green they are, mm-hmm. will be passed on. Now, we want to say thanks to our folks at AvWeb and Russ Niles for posting this story. It's really interesting, sustainable aviation fuel. And so that is for mainly the, well, for the turbine world. But that's real big money. I mean, almost mm-hmm. two bucks in credits. Now, will that be passed along to the owner-operator or will it be extra income for the FBO? You know, I am not sure how that's going to go. But the fact yeah. that that this this was in there, that's significant move forward for sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah, I actually do think that's true. Think it'll pass get passed on to the consumer? I do, okay. because I think the credit. My sense is the credit will, you know, starts kind of down the line, and they want to sell more, and so they're going to make it cheaper to make it competitive with regular jet A. Okay. So just really quick, and I'm going to do this as fast as I can. SAF, Sustainable Aviation Fuel, is essentially biofuel. That's something people call it. The thing is, it's bigger than biofuel, which is why they went to this SAF. Around the world, airlines are have made a commitment to reduce emissions by, I think, 50, oh, don't quote me on the numbers, 50% maybe in the next 20 years, 10 years. And the way they're going to do it is SAF. That's the only way they can figure out to do it in that short of a time. They come, SAF comes from a number of different sources. Some of it is biofuel. Some of it is waste. My favorite that I just think is fascinating is there's a, a plant in Europe that's being built that will literally make fuel from the air. 
So it takes carbon dioxide and moisture and somehow essentially takes the byproducts of fuel and reverse chemical engineers it into fuel. Now, didn't I read about dandelion fuel at one point yes, in the near algaes, past? Yeah. Yes, there's all kinds. Yeah, feedstocks, uh-huh. fuel, uh-huh. yeah. So SAF is, for the operator, it's completely, one word that you and I have learned, fungible. It's completely fungible. So Mix it with anything. Anything, and that's because the ASTM standard allows for up to 50% of SAF to be the essentially the same fuel, same chemical structure as Jet A. So that means that if you go to an FBO, they could theoretically have 50% SAF in the tanks and not even tell you. It doesn't even matter. Oh, okay. Well, because it mixes. It's readily mixed. Completely mixed, yep. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because if it's over 50%, they're probably going to have to make a separate tank and new standards. But if it's less than 50%, that's the deal. So right now... SAF is, let's call it, it depends on the area, let's call it, it's about a buck more expensive per gallon. Their hope is to get it to the same price or maybe even cheaper. So there are two real challenges right now in adoption. One is the price. It's it's hard to get people to pay more for something that's that's the same. The other is knowledge. A lot of operators, a lot of jet operators, turbine operators don't know that they can go and, and mix and match these fuels with no approvals, no maintenance, no like signing logbooks, no nothing. You can just bring it on as, as quickly and as easily as you want. And when you're talking about jet operators, we also are talking about corporate pilots. So you're talking about some GA pilots that might be flying for a small business, you know, in, in maybe a, a small jet, a Cessna Citation, something like that. I think the NBAA has jumped aboard on this even a couple of years ago. Several of their international conventions have have you know, promoted SAF fuels as uh, a leading way to get to the future and and to start to reduce some of those emissions, you know, around yeah. the world. So this is a, a really good thing for not just us in, in America, but for the entire world. Big time around the world, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, so if you do fly a turbine and you want to try it, if you want to start bringing it on, maybe your company, a lot of cases I think companies will have uh, carbon credit targets, I guess. And one way to do that is through SAF. And so you can go to, it's for the number four, air, A-I-R dot arrow, and they have a map. And you can go on and actually see where you can buy it today. It's in a few FBOs, mostly on the West Coast. It just has to do with distribution and, and what's going on there. The airlines are right now sort of driving that distribution. But uh, like I said, I, I kind of nerd out on it. So I, I hope <laughs> I hope it's not too boring. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do find this stuff interesting because I think it's, well, I just think it's like science fiction and it's just very cool. It is. It is. And just a, a real quick reminder for for the non-turbine folks that are listening to us uh, on Hangar Talk on the podcast and on and viewing us on YouTube, when we're talking about aviation fuel, I just want to remind folks they could still get the latest information at aopa.org slash 100 UL and uh, keep keep them up to speed on what's going on with the you know the Eagle consortium and things like that. So you know for us piston drivers at this point, there there's still a lot of impetus on getting the lead out of that and and going to, to a more sustainable business model as well. Yeah. Okay, last thing we're going to talk about is also looking into the future and and there you go. Boy, it looks like sci-fi. The black fly, the black fly flew. The black fly flying. flew a couple of times at Air Venture. Yeah. Yeah. So so you were there. Tell me all about it. I was. Um, it was really interesting. The uh, Wednesday night air show, we were treated to the uh, Black Fly, which is from the company called Opener. The Black Fly has been at AirVenture a couple of times in a row now. 
it, it looks like a giant drone to me, but it's a single person aviation vehicle. It's electrically operated. You can control flight with a human or it can be controlled remotely. So the, the story this time was uh, the black fly flew. It was controlled by a pilot. Wyatt Warner operated the black fly from the cockpit during the air show. Also uh, did a demo at the short takeoff and landing strip, which is on the far side over there at AirVenture. And so Wyatt has over 100 flight tests in the field and said it was a dream come true. Now, it was neat to watch this thing maneuver. Uh, it went it went up it went you know straight up uh, more or less it went down it went left and right and it was uh, it was kind of a treat to see that now we should talk a little bit about the device itself because when there's um, a pilot in it you don't need an end number <laughs> because it's so lightweight it's mm, three hundred ultra light basically yeah ultra light three hundred thirteen pounds empty when it's operated as a drone it has an end number now isn't that interesting that is interesting yeah, yeah. Hmm. a little bit of trivia there so ian how much do you think this bad boy is going to cost oh okay how much do they say it's going to cost or how much is it really going to cost well they say it's going to be available for about the price quote unquote the price of an suv and i'm making air quotes hmm. here for the folks who can't See me. So I did. Boy, then, okay. So is it like okay, yes. uh, a Subaru Outback SUV right, that's right. like 25 grand? Or is it like a Porsche, the Maserati SUV that's like a quarter million, right? Well, I got some prices for you here, Ian. Just I okay, figured you were going to ask. So if you were looking to get, I drive a Honda CRV. It's a two, uh, just so folks know, it's a 2009 model. It's not brand new. <laughs> but a new one is about about 33000 bucks. I would say that's oh, sort of that, the base I'm, price. Yeah, okay, yeah, base, and yeah, right. Now, did you know that Ford, the new Ford Mustang, they have an EV version of the Ford mm -hmm. Mustang, and that's an SUV. Hmm. Now, so the Mustang is $45,000, the EV version of the Mustang. Okay. So, I mean, already we're going... Thirty-three grand, forty-five thousand. Yeah. Like you said, is it is it a SUV Porsche? You know, those yeah. are like a hundred. Yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what it's going to end up being. My, I'm guessing it, it might be. If it's fifty thousand bucks, that's a pretty expensive toy, in my opinion. Yeah. Oh man, but you know these. I mean, boy. 150 to 250. You know how it is. Yeah, um, price goes I mean, up. I remember the Icon when it first came out. Yeah. So I guess the deal is, unlike some others that are looking at the Uber market, let's call it the Uber Air market, which it's not really Uber anymore, but whatever, this is more of a personal device, personal, personal vehicle, toy, personal air vehicle, maybe military application, delivery, that sort of thing. So look, if I'm going to take off out of my house here and say the backyard over in Urbana, just south of Frederick, and I want to go to the our local grocery stores are, are run by a firm called Giant. So if I want to go from my house to the Giant, which would be cool, you know, it's a couple of miles away, you know, okay, I can see that. Now, I can't stuff much in this bad boy because it's only, you know. It's like a built, motorcycle. It's like right, it's, a motorcycle. It is. It's like yeah. an, an aerial motorcycle. It's enclosed. For folks who haven't seen it, there's a canopy. It's sort of like a, a, a it's like a vertical, it's like a, it looks like a guppy, you know, like a vertical yeah, version a of, a, of a guppy. Sort of thing. 
Yeah. It maybe it would be cool to kind of to kind of go from point to point if you had to jump over traffic things like that. Now I still maintain the fact that our infrastructure is not ready for this kind of thing. It's going to operate in the same space that drones operate in, like, like less than 400 feet. Well, when we when it was maneuvering above the airfield at um, at AirVenture, it was clearly less than 400 feet above ground level. So there are still questions about how you would operate one of these things. Yeah. Boy, I tell you, the most amazing thing to me is with these things is the test pilots. These people are gutsy. I, I don't think you could get me in that at this point in the testing process. You know, you're talking... You're talking way back, sort of manned flight sort of risks, because it's like, you know, these things are completely unproven. So interesting. All right. Well, a little closer to Earth, sim training, what uh, what a lot of us go through uh, on the grind, maybe, and don't necessarily look forward to. John Martin maybe has a different perspective, uh, looking at it more as a, as a good career, something for alternative to the airlines, maybe. And uh, I think he has a really nice take on it. So where are we and what do you do here? Well, I've been with SimCom as an, as an instructor mm -hmm. for just over four years. I started in uh, 2018 with them. Mm -hmm. I started on the PC-12 program because prior to coming to work here, that was the aircraft that I was spending the bulk of my time flying. I, I had an aircraft management company. and. I had, I was very fortunate. I had several clients that enjoyed the the capability of the PC-12. So I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time in them over the years, in excess of 12 years of operation and about 6,000 cycles. So when I could no longer fly professionally because of a medical issue, uh, and I decided to get back into the industry. Uh, SimCom just happened to have a, a vacancy in their PC-12 program, so the timing was good for SimCom, it was good for me. I had been here as a customer over the years, I knew the company, I didn't really know how it was set up organizationally. I wasn't even sure I was going to be qualified to work here. Turns out, they thought I was, and so they hired me. And a little bit of a learning curve for me, because it was my first job working for someone since I'd been in college. And after a little bit of an adjustment period, I became quite comfortable teaching the Pilatus platform. And then after about a year, it just happened to work out that they needed to replace the outgoing program manager on the PC-12. Mm -hmm. And they chose me to fill that position. Doesn't mean a whole lot other than it's a little bit of administrative stuff that goes on occasionally. And then if any of the other instructors that teach on the platform have questions, they come to me. That doesn't mean I can answer them, but at least I'm the starting point. And then uh, we can work from there to, to get any other details we need. After about a year in the PC-12 program, they also decided to, to move me into and start teaching on the caravan program also. Now, the, we, what we refer to those here in, in this industry, we call those tracks. If you teach on a specific platform, that means you teach on a track. Most instructors in this industry teach multiple tracks. Many of the instructors in this industry have significant experience in the aircraft they teach on. 
many instructors do not. I'm very fortunate that both the, the tracks that I teach on, both the platforms I teach on, I have what I consider pretty decent experience levels in both of them. So it's easier for me. Mm -hmm. I, it would be difficult for me to imagine teaching on a platform that you've never flown. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that is quite common in this industry. And I was a bit naive when I got into it. And I had to, had to kind of wrap my head around that after a while. Mm -hmm. So over the last several years, the program has developed a little bit. SimCom has gone through some changes. We're in the process of changing some of our operational characteristics. <laughs> And that's a nice way of saying we're changing stuff mm -hmm. and we're getting ready to move to a new location next spring and it's going to be about three to four times the size of this one mm -hmm. lots of new equipment coming online lots of new training materials lots of new types of classrooms including virtual reality Ooh. is coming online so some pretty exciting stuff and mm -hmm. for an older guy like myself you gotta some of it's a little intimidating but uh, for some of our younger personnel, they're just really looking forward to it. So, right. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, that's super exciting and cool. Yeah. From what I understand, there's several different SimCom locations. Mm -hmm. There are different operations that go on at each one. So like at this one where we are here in Orlando, right. Florida, we have the propeller side, the tur or the turboprop side, mm -hmm. and then we also have the jet side. That's correct. So what are the typical students that SimCom sees overall, and then what are the typical students that you you see over on, on, on this these side? platforms? Yeah, versus like what what I'm thinking of is it mostly airline types or like corporate pilots, or mm -hmm. is it owner pilots coming in to fly well, to learn it, how to fly it, something? It, they it depends on the platform, right? Uh, so typically, in the what we refer to as the 142 end of the building, mm -hmm. that's the end of the building where most of the platforms require a type rating. Mm -hmm. And on type rated platforms, the regulatory environment is much more stringent mm -hmm. than it is on platforms that don't require type ratings. Okay, and the 142 we, comes from the number 142? FAR. From the FAR. FAR okay. 142. Perfect. Right. Cool. And so on this end of the building, in the propeller room, we don't teach on any propeller-driven aircraft at this facility that require type ratings. Okay. The largest propeller-driven aircraft we, we teach on in this building is a King Air 350. Now, the King Air 350 can certainly be operated above 12,500 pounds, mm -hmm. and it does require a type rating. Some operators operate it that way. Some people don't. We offer type rating training in that platform, but they have to take the check ride in the actual airplane. Oh, okay. 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 Some of our other motion simulators mm -hmm. allow the, the applicants to take their type rating ride in the simulator itself. That doesn't apply to our non-motion simulators. Right. And with one exception, uh, I shouldn't say that, with the exception of several aircraft that are in the same platform, mm -hmm. all of our propeller-driven platforms are non-motion. Most of them are level six simulators. Mm -hmm. Some of them are level five simulators. Both mm -hmm. FAA certified. The syllabus for each platform is certified by the FAA and approved by the FAA and so on and so forth. Right. So there's still regulatory hoops that have to be jumped through and met, but they're not as stringent as the platforms that require type ratings. Right. Now, what kind of customers do we get? That's mm -hmm. a great question. Literally, I've had customers in the 
300 hour total time range. I've had customers with 30,000 hours. I've had customers with zero type ratings. I've had customers with five pilot certificates because they have so many type ratings. Oh, wow. And everything in between. So you can't really say, but you can go to a particular aircraft. For instance, we have a Gulfstream 650 here. Mm -hmm. Now, almost all of the students that go through our Gulfstream 650 program mm -hmm. work for FlexJet. Those individuals are usually experienced on other jet platforms, but they're just transitioning into the Gulfstream. So we, we get, that's, that's kind of a, a homogenous type of pilot that comes to a platform like that. Caravan. We might have a guy that used to fly a 182 and decided he wanted a bigger airplane and now he wants to buy a caravan and learn how to fly it. Or we might have somebody that flies a caravan on floats that's based on the back of a yacht that travels all over the world. <laughs> the, the dream. And that's, I've had that student. Oh, cool. uh, lucky guy. Yeah. And, and everything in between. Mm -hmm get into the Pilatus world. Pilatuses operate on every continent. I don't think there's any based in Antarctica, but, but they've been there. That's pretty cool. And, and literally all over the world. And so that platform, we get mostly professional pilots, but a significant percentage of owner pilots. So based on what I've alluded to, you mm -hmm. can imagine that in this end of the building, yeah. we get a little bit more of a variety of individuals right. than they do on the other end of the building. It presents certain challenges, but it also makes it fun because we don't deal with cookie cutter types. We don't deal with pilots that meet certain qualifications and very stringent performance standards. We get to deal with all different kinds and that's kind of what makes it fun on this end of the building. And because that's where I made my career mm -hmm. in the GA light aircraft end of the world, mm -hmm. that's kind of where I want to stay. I don't, I don't want to I don't want to go learn to fly jets, even though I have flown them, but I've, I've never done them professionally. Make sense? Yeah, All totally. Right. So what are what is your favorite part of your job as a sim instructor? Saturday mornings when I don't have to come to, no. Okay, yeah, um, I mean, that, that's no, a legitimate it, answer. It, that's how you feel. It's kind of like being an instructor, period. When you see progress in a student, mm -hmm. it makes you feel good. Yeah. That's kind of what makes you want to be an instructor. When you get a student to a certain plateau that, you know, a, a rating or a check ride or a, a certain technique that they've tried to master and they finally do, mm -hmm. then that makes you feel good. And because we work in the platforms I teach on, the Caravan and the Pilatus, because we work with a variety of individuals it's never the same two two classes in a row. I, and I tell students many times, mm -hmm. I've never taught two classes that were the same. I don't know that I ever will. Yeah. Because I've never had two students that were the same. And I think that gives me a bit of an advantage because I've been a flight instructor for a long time, mm -hmm. 30 plus years. And I've taught on a wide variety of platforms in the real world, not just at Simcom. Mm -hmm. And so I... It's a little easier for me right. than people that don't have a lot of real world experience as a flight instructor because they have a tough time mm -hmm. making sure the students get what they need when they walk out the door. We, it's, all, it's a challenge for all of us, right. but for folks that don't have a whole lot of years and calendars and hours under their belt, it's a bigger challenge. We have, yeah. some, we have some young flight instructors here that mm -hmm. are exceptionally talented instructors, but they just don't have those 
30 years of hard knocks to fall back sure. on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's definitely a learning curve to being Oh, my instructor. goodness. There's, you know, one of the things that is an overriding theme in aviation, and I don't, I'll take it to the grave with me, there's no substitute for experience. We can have the best training in the world. You can fly the best equipment in the world. You can fly in the best environments in the world. Unfortunately, there's no substitute for cycles for experience. I wish there was a way we could overcome that challenge, but we can't. And if you look at the safest operations in the world, are scheduled air carriers in the United States. Mm -hmm. and, and look at the way they're structured and look at the, um, the evolution that they went through over the years to achieve those ridiculously good standards. Mm -hmm usually the guy in the left seat or the the young lady or the captain let's call him that because that's kind of a term they use in that industry mm -hmm. that's in the left seat of that aircraft he hadn't been flying for two years it's probably not her first aircraft it might be her tenth the person in the right seat it might be their second or third airplane, but it's going to be 10 or 15 years before they make it to the left seat. And what's the difference between the two? It's not that they can't both fly the plane equally well. It's the experience to fall back on and the wisdom of that experience for when things aren't working normal. That's why they have such a good safety record. Any aircraft's relatively easy to fly when everything works. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, unfortunately, not everything works all the time. Right, and that's such a big part of simulator training is practicing. Well, it, it, the it is because simulators afford us the opportunity to do things that you can't practice safely in the airplane. Mm -hmm. You can practice engine outs in the real airplane, not nearly as safely and not nearly as at low an altitude <laughs> as you can in the simulator. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, the difference the between a red screen and a simulator versus a red screen and a real airplane. Well, <laughs> you probably never see a red screen in a real airplane. <laughs> yeah. So what's your least favorite part of the job? Probably the least favorite part uh, is, is something that's been an overriding theme in my career period, and that's paperwork. We don't have to do a lot of paperwork, but the little bit of paperwork we do have to do, I, I could care less because I don't think people became professionals in the aviation industry because they enjoyed paperwork. That's probably universally <laughs> true. But yeah. it's, a, it's a necessary evil. Yeah. And then the, I guess uh, maybe probably more so than that is occasionally we do work on usual hours. Yeah. Now, I'm fortunate, I've been here long enough, and I have enough seniority in the program to where I typically don't work the really unusual hours, but I still work weekends occasionally, I still work evenings occasionally, and that's a little tough. But that's about it, which, when you think about it, that's not that bad. Yeah. So pretty, pretty short, normal list. Yep. Something that's been interesting to me about sim training is that, like, it, they're such long days, but at the end of the day, there's mm -hmm. just so much more that like you feel like you need to learn. It's not like oh yeah. Oh wait, it's it's not that I thought that like oh this is like are they do is it really gonna take us eight hours to do the turbine transition <laughs> training? And then you got here and it's like oh it totally is. It totally yeah. is gonna take this long, and there's just so much to learn. So I feel like as an instructor who mm -hmm. my ex my my experience instructing is you know. In 150s, 152s, mm -hmm. 172s, 182s, and stuff like that, mm -hmm. where I'm with a student for a couple hours a day. Mm -hmm. You are with a student for eight plus hours a day for three or four days in a row. Or longer. Or longer. Some of our courses are seven or eight days. Yeah, mm -hmm. teaching this really high level information 
that must be so hard as an instructor. <laughs> well, it is and it isn't. You know, most people live in homes, but it would seem intimidating to them to think about building the home. Mm -hmm. Because a home seems like a pretty complex structure. And to a degree they are, I guess, especially modern homes. Mm -hmm. So the first time I went to build a house, I didn't look at the house as this complex structure that I was eventually going to create. Mm -hmm. I looked at the house one board at a time. And when you break a house down into an individual board mm -hmm. one at a time, it really kind of gets easy. So I try to do the same thing when I'm talking about relatively complex systems or relatively complex procedures. Let's just break it down. And if we're talking about something as complex as an engine, let's start from scratch and just talk about the theory and blah, 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 blah. The real talent for seasoned instructors, and I don't necessarily consider myself one of those yet, because we got guys here that are a lot more seasoned than I am, is to be able to not get into the weeds so deep that it's actually negative information for the pilot. Because remember, we're pilots. We're not engineers for Pratt & Whitney. We're not engineers for Continental. We don't work on airframe subsystems for Textron. So we don't need to worry about the torque of the axle nuts. But yet some instructors actually go down that path. And we have to remember that we're talking to pilots that are pretty much in a relatively limited exposure to the airplane, one seat. So you have to get systems knowledge and complexity and everything down to where, yes, you can accommodate it within the allotted time that you have for training and not go beyond what the pilot really needs to know. And yet we still do. What you will have experienced by the time you finish this course tomorrow, you will have gone through much more complexity and much more in-depth digging around on subsystems than you really ever need to. Because it's kind of like most of the courses, I'm going to speak on my own behalf. It's kind of like most of the courses I took in college. Mm -hmm. I don't remember any of it. I remember the fundamentals, but that's about it. And it's the same in aviation. If you don't use it every day or think about it every day, it goes away. So six months from now, you won't remember what that switch in the caravan does unless you start flying caravans tomorrow. Six months from now, you go, oh, now I remember what that switch is for. Oh, that's okay. a no smoking sign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, I, I think that over time, most instructors eventually get to that point. And, you know, I can spend with somebody that's new to a turbine aircraft like yourself, mm -hmm. I can spend eight hours going over the engine. And that's just about right, sort of. But when I get somebody that's coming in here that has flown turbine aircraft but's never flown a PT-6, mm -hmm. we can go through the engine in an hour and a half. You, you see my point? Right. So... In other words, I think one thing SimCom does really well in the industry, and mm -hmm. it, it goes all the way back to when SimCom started, a long time before I ever came here, and that is they tailor the instruction to the individual. It's not cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. There's not this cut and dried word for word syllabus that the instructor sits up there and parrots in front of the class. It's tailored to the individual. And that's what sets SimCom apart from a lot of other training organizations. Now. 
I'm not mentioning any names. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because Simcom has a ridiculously good in, in relationship with all the other big name training organizations. We really do. Mm -hmm. We kind of we actually help each other out quite a bit. But we started with little aircraft and have worked up. Some of the other organizations started with big aircraft and worked down. So it's, it was an evolutionary process for us. We right. started having to think about the big boys, mm -hmm. which was foreign to us. But the guys that only talked to the big boys, when they started thinking about the little guys, they had to rethink. Mm -hmm. And it's been a tough evolution for both of us. But when it comes to these light aircraft that have propellers hanging on them, I think Simcom does it probably as good or better than anybody. And I think some of that's verified by the fact that we get a lot of instructors that come to work here that used to work for some of the other organizations. Mm -hmm. And that's the feedback they give us on this end of the building, on the light aircraft end. David, so I, it's tough, you know, people don't love the sim experience. So, uh, I, it's a hard job. I give him a lot of credit. I do too. I, I met him and he was su uh, super helpful. And, uh, I could just say that I would do that. I, I would love to take a transition course mm -hmm. and with someone as, as patient. And I think that it's a step in the right direction. If, especially if you're going to go from piston engines to turbines and a caravan, is a, it's, it's like a giant 172, 182. Yeah. But that is a super cool career to me is to be if you're a good teacher and, and you can get along with your students. I see that as a real interesting career move. And I'm happy that he found additional work in aviation. Yeah. So that's pretty darn neat. That is cool. All right. Hey, that's all the time we have. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash talk. You can find us on YouTube as well and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Hangar Talk. From AOPA, your freedom to fly.